Welcome back into the We Shall Not Sleep podcast for this week. Wow, what a journey. We continue to go on. It amazes me each and every week with the guests and the conversations we have. I think you were in for a treat this week. But before I tease that, I just want to say a big thank you to those who have prayed and donated and have done so much more than what I ever asked for this podcast, including you, the listener, who is taking time out of your busy schedule to listen to edifying conversation. Thank you so much. And I promise you, I'm thinking about you while I'm making this content because I think this is a journey that God has called all of us to because it's not done in isolation. It's not done by just one person. It's the collective. So I just want to, again, emphasize that point. Connect with us on any podcast platform. You know what those are, including YouTube, on our Facebook pages. If you ever have any feedback or questions critical, uh, maybe critical uh, feedback as far as what we can do better, constructive criticism, what have you. Just email that to wsnspodcast at gmail.com and I promise you I'll listen to it. Alrighty, so my guest this week, my friend and fellow pastor, Jared Ritchie, who is at College Church of the Nazarene and functions as the discipleship and outreach pastor right there at the campus of our alma mater, Olivet Nazarene University, there in Bourbonnais, Illinois. He is a father and devoted husband. He has a lot to share. His integrity and his passion will bleed through your headphones as you listen to this episode. You will sense his passion for the church, and you will get a a sense of how much this guy is devoted to the mission of Christ. We talk about topics of followership of Christ versus discipleship. When the pendulum swings in the culture, where is the church? Are we trying to play both sides? Are we supposed to be on one side or the other? What happens when we learn more about Jesus? Is our perspective supposed to change? Do we just forget our past then? So a lot of great conversations, a lot of great questions are raised here. And you'll hear me rant a few times and probably yell, at your phone or computer to tell me to shut up. And, you know, Jared has no problem bringing me back in either. And you're going to get a sense of our friendship. So I cannot wait. I will take my own advice. I will step out of the way so I can introduce my good friend, Jared Ritchie. Hey, buddy, it's good to see you again. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Uh, for those who will be listening to this for the first time, uh, I'm a little jealous, uh, or I would say they should be a little jealous of, of me because they, have, they haven't any had any exposure to you at all. So, man, it's great to see. How, how's the family doing? Yeah, we're doing good. Um, blessed to be able to uh, come on and uh, participate in this. And uh, family's doing great. It's warm, finally, although it's very muddy. But, you know, with a toddler and a dog, um, it's great to be able to go outside. So doing yeah. well. And just when I, I think Jared Ritchie, uh, is, his life is not very busy. You add a dog to your, your chaos, normal chaos. But you know what? That's what you're supposed to do, right? It's just another thing, another thing that uh, God's called you to, I guess, if, if God can call you to pets. But um, I, listen, we, we met, we met at, when I was a sophomore and you were a freshman 
uh, on the campus of Olivet Nazarene University for those who, who want to know the history. And do you remember uh, particularly mm-hmm. what class we met in by chance? Do you remember that? I want to say it was Old Testament with Dr. Mellish. Uh, it's close. I mean, it's close, right? It's definitely theology, but it was a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 8 a.m. class. It was Christian education. And that was, uh, oh, yes. remember who that was with? Was that? Uh, Dr. Blanchett. Dr. Blanchett. Yeah, Blanchett. I remember now. Yep. Yeah. And uh, you were just ma- weird married kid who was a freshman who was 19 <laughs> sitting in this corner. And I'm thinking, who is this guy? And I, we got, we got partnered up on a, on a couple of things. Cause you know, uh, Blanchett would use a little bit more interactive uh, approaches to mm-hmm. his, his lesson. Yeah. So that's how we got to know each other. And then over the course of next uh, four years, I pretty much, pretty much bothered you for four years and you just put up with me. I, th- I think that's, am I right? That's not true. That's not true. Oh goodness. Well, Hey, I know your story, but for those who don't know you, uh, I, I just would like you to ask, or just describe if you could, if I can ask you, how did you come to know Jesus? Did you grow up in a, in a church uh, related family, a God fearing family, or what was your, I guess, path to salvation like? Yeah. So I think uh, the best way to explain it um, is that I don't know if I've ever known a time that I didn't know about Jesus. Um, I grew up in a Christian home. Um, I was probably as close to being a PK without actually being a PK, and that's pastor's kid, um, because the church that I went to, my grandfather was pastor at. So um, I was a uh, grandchild of the pastor and um, really involved in the church. Uh, it was a church plant and my mom led worship um, and my dad ran sound. So we were the first to show up, set up, and we were the last to leave. And uh, so that's, that's the, um, that's kind of how everything started. I mean, I do remember when I was like five or six years old, um, say having a, I don't know, making it make purposely deciding that Jesus was like, I wanted Jesus like in my life. Um, whether or not you can fully make that, you know, that decision at, at five, six, six years old, but it definitely, it was really an affirmation of what the Lord proveniently had been doing in my life, um, before that, um, did it, I haven't, but then it just kind of unfolds from there. So, um, grew up and, um, everything was great. And that's how I, um, everything was great in quotation marks, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and that's kind of how I came to know Jesus. Um, obviously, it's an unfolding relationship. Um, we're, we're, we're constantly we're constantly learning that. But that that was my first. I just kind of grew up into it. Um, I don't have a. Um, a I don't say boring because, you know, I don't like when people say they have a boring testimony. Um, I don't have a dramatic one, I guess I'll say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's kind of one of faithfulness that I've seen, you know, God work in my life, um, from, from very early age. Gotcha. And, and that, that would be directly connected to, you know, how God's working with you and how he brought you to Olivet. So how did you go from where you grew up to Lafayette, which people would not know about you, uh, you call Lafayette home, which you've failed to never uh, you know, forget to mention to those who are around you, you constantly throw that in conversations. There's a lot of pride, uh, with, uh, with Northwestern Indiana there. And, uh, I remember, 
I think I had the privilege of, of going with you and Macy uh, through Lafayette. And I'm like, well, this guy knows this town pretty well. Cause I'm like, and there's this and there's this and there's this. So yeah. how, how do you go from, I mean, I know it's not that far from Olivet to Lafayette at all, but how did you get to ONU? How did you come to walk into Blanchett's class that one day? And then the world was never the same once, you know, once you and I met. Yeah. So I grew up, I was born in South Bend, Indiana. Um, I was there until I was two. And then I, my family moved to, I kind of follow my grandparents in planting a church to Branson, Missouri. And that's where I grew up until I was 14. And then 14, at 14, my dad got a job at Purdue University and um, we moved there. Um, that, that was a really interesting time of my life um, and my faith. Um, I mean, moving somewhere that we literally didn't know a soul. Um, and it was away from where I grew up. Um, and had a hard time getting connected with the church at first, and then eventually got connected to the church of the Nazarene in town. Uh, my, um, we, we checked a couple of the churches, didn't really fit. Um, we went to the Nazarene church because my dad grew up Nazarene. Um, his, my grandpa, my dad's dad was, you know, a Sunday school superintendent for like 17 years and in Mason, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um my grandpa, who is my grandpa, who is the pastor, was actually ordained in the Church of the Nazarene. Uh, did some church planting with the Church of the Nazarene out in Oregon, um, and uh, but then eventually he switched over to the missionary church, um, and that's where he uh, finished out at. And so we went and tried the Nazarene church, and um, that would be the first avenue of getting to know Olivet. So, um, however, I did not plan on going to Olivet. I uh, one, I uh, thought I was going to go to Bethel College, um, now Bethel University up in Mishawaka, Indiana. Um, my dad had worked there. That's why we were living in South Bend at this time when I was born. My dad worked there. My grandparents went there. My mom went there for a season. Both of my brothers went there. So it was kind of a family college. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's kind of where I was expected to go. And th- there's a lot of Bethel pride, especially my grandpa. Um, who is the pastor. He was really instrumental in my call to ministry. Um, I think he's a little disappointed when I didn't actually go there. Um, (laughs) But uh, I had registered there. I mean, I, I mean, I was full blown going to be there. Um, And then one time I was sitting in Sunday school class um, at Lafayette First Church, the Nazarene. I was wearing a shirt that I got at ONU for a regional celebrate life or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I looked down at my shirt and it was the weirdest thing. I just felt the Lord in my heart saying, that's where you need to go to college. That's where you need to go. I mean, everything was said and done um, with Bethel. So um, it was also kind of in a period of um, I was, I I wasn't sure what I was going to do at that point in time. I had just come out of a season that I thought that I was going to be going into the Marines. Um, So I did all my signing and everything like that. I had a boot camp date um, and that's part of my call uh, to ministry. And so I, when I, when, when the Lord called me to go to Olivet, um, it was kind of in this season of unknown of what was, you know, what was coming in the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he was really shaking things up. Um, so yeah. How, how late in the game did you actually end up committing to Olivet? Like, what was the timeline? I'm, I, that actually is something I don't know. Yeah. So I, oh, let's see here. This was, 
this was, uh, I want to say it was May, May mm-hmm. of May of 2012, which is when I, uh, I graduated midterm from, I graduated early from high school. Um, so it was about six months after I graduated May of 2012, supposed to go there that year. Um, I literally went online, applied that afternoon. Um, you know, that I felt like the Lord was like, Hey, this is where you need to go. Um, and I went and had a visit and was accepted within two weeks. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and then that's, that's, that's where I was, that's where I was, um, that's where I was going to go. So, um, yeah, that's, it was kind of a whirlwind. That's for sure. Yeah. And considering in the midst of all that, you also got married. What are you doing? Like yeah, 19 years old, right? At that time. Yeah. So, well, so I was 18 at that point in time. My, my world was really getting shooken up. So, um, I, you know, I felt like I was supposed to go into the Marines and had thought that for a while I had always appreciated and loved the military. Um, you know, I, I kind of had felt a call to ministry, but kind of ignored it. My grandpa was this kind of like Titan of a spiritual person. And so I just didn't, it just didn't seem that I could do that. Um, so I kind of reserved myself to be like, oh, well, I could go be a chaplain um, in the military somewhere. And then it kind of, you know, kind of devolved to, well, I might go do military police um, in the Marines and, you know, do a stint and then maybe you know go to school, become an officer. If I eventually get to the ministry thing, maybe, maybe, but I just don't know. Um, the Lord really woke me up through my grandpa, uh, in a particular conversation. Um, and so that made me really rethink things. And the Lord is like, Hey, you need to be going to Olivet, not Bethel. And then at the same time, so in May, before I was supposed to come, I had committed, I had been in a couple like quick relationships, you know, in my later high school years. And it just really took my focus off of what I was supposed to be doing. So I was like, I'm not going to date or do anything until I get into college. Um, And so, okay, um, yeah. (laughs) And so that May, I, well, I had, I had met my wife, Macy, by working at Chick-fil-A. We worked at, we both were managers at the Chick-fil-A in town. And, and we, and that, and that uh, Chick-fil-A had the worst service possible because uh, you two were smitten and not focused on the customer. Not, not true. Not true. <laughs> we were professionals uh, um, at love. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, so we, but then it was at that point in time, you know, I, I kind of had like feelings for, for Macy and I'm like, you know what? No, like I, I had made this commitment to the Lord that I, you know, wasn't going to, you know, date or do anything until, um, until I got into college to focus on my call to ministry. Well, the funny thing that I found out is that just because you make a commitment to the Lord doesn't mean that the Lord makes the commitment back. So, um, I, I, I sincerely felt him saying, Hey, like you need, you need to, um, it's, it's okay for you to like, I don't want to say the word pursue. That seems, that seems weird, but you know, it, it, it's okay to pursue Macy, so to speak. And she did kind of have to be pursued because she denied him three times. So, um, <laughs> and you still kept going back ever persistent yeah. young man. Well, I mean, if the Lord is like, Hey, you can do this. I was like, by golly, you know, um, <laughs> I'm going to do it. So, um, 
yeah. So it was also in that May that we started dating. So like, like where I was going to school changed the fact that I wasn't going to date. And then now, but I mean, I had a very serious relationship with, I had a very serious conversation with Macy. We, like before we even started dating, I said, listen, this was the commitment that I made to the Lord. So this is like a stretch that I'm even like sitting down here with you uh, for, for me, uh, because I didn't want to betray what I had promised that I would do. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I said, you know, I'm called to be a pastor. This is what I'm going to be doing. Um, so, and with, with what I said before about like committing, committing what I was trying to commit to the Lord, uh, d- to maintain focus was I'm not getting in a flippant relationship. So if I'm getting into the relationship, I'm thinking about marriage. Um, so kind of like laid it all, laid it all there. And she was like, yeah, I'm okay with that. <laughs> I don't think she knew what she was signing up for. Um, definitely not, no. but yeah, so that was. So that was that year. Um, and I was supposed to come to Olivet in 2012 because we're the same age, even though you were a sophomore and I was a freshman. We're the same age. You're only like a day older than I am. Yes, which um, I will forever hold over your head. Yes, Respect your elders, Jared. So, um, but financial aid fell through. Mm-hmm. Um, like, right, like, you know, we thought something was going to come through. It didn't uh, at the beginning of the summer. So we thought it was going to work out. It just, just didn't really make sense. So I was like, well, I'm in this relationship with Macy. Um, and I didn't know what to do. Two weeks before I, two weeks before classes started at Olivet, we got a call from Olivet saying, or um, our friend, Tony Fightmaster, who is really nice. working uh, to help me get to Olivet. Um, very appreciative for Tony. And he, he called up and he said, Hey, I think we figured out a scholarship to make it work for you all. Um, and I was just like, you know, I had already made the decision to do online classes at a local community college. I was going to work for a year. I was in this relationship with Macy actually by that point in time, um, this was August that I got this phone call. Macy and I had been dated, dating for four months and I had already decided I'm going to propose to her. (laughs) Um, so, which, which I did six months, um, two days before our six month anniversary. So, um, anyway, so, and then, you know, the Lord worked it out that we, you know, we did come, um, two weeks after we got married in June of 2013, uh, we moved States. So we, within a span of two weeks, we got married. We moved out of our parents' house with neither of us had ever done. Macy had never been moved out of the same bedroom. Um, and we moved states and we started college. Hmm. Um, so we decided to put five of the like 10 life stressors all within the span of about six weeks. So, and yeah. I bet you don't. Do you remember anything about that time or is it all a blur? Oh, it's pretty blurry. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's I remember years. a lot of, a lot of ups and downs. Yeah. Eight years. It's, it's crazy. Um, a lot of ups and downs. Um, but you know, the Lord was faithful through it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't, you don't really see that, um, until you're kind of away from it. Um, but the Lord really was faithful through it all. And, and I, the reason why I wanted you to have to, you to tell that story in particular is because of how special it is, how unique uh, it's, I mean, special and unique, I guess they're synonyms, but in this case, it's special because it's yours and yours alone, but it's unique in the aspect that it doesn't happen 
to uh, a lot of people considering how young you were. I just remember when I looked at you, you're like, you're, you're married, you're 19. Like what, what? I don't understand. Like, why would you do that to yourself? Uh, Because I have a a different view of marriage when I was, you know, 19 years old as well. I had the unique thing in the bag. Like whenever professor said, Hey, what's one unique thing about you introduce yourself and what's one unique thing. And that entire first year I got to say I'm married and it blew everyone's minds. Yes, yes, it did. And then sophomore year, you know, once people are enlightened and they've learned everything, their freshman year at college, they don't, <laughs> and they don't need anything else. Then, then you're in, you, you have more company with you. Um, so thank you for, for, for telling that. Like, these are the things that you had going into college that a lot of people didn't have. And you had history in the church. You had a knowledge of a lot of things. You have family connections. You're able to step out in faith into this great unknown and this great beyond tackle a lot of challenges that most people by the time they're 30 haven't even accomplished or tackled. And here you are a faithful brother. You are going through college step-by-step. You slowly add more things to your plate. Uh, You are the busiest person that I know personally, who doesn't maybe have like seven or eight kids, but like, like our age, you're by far the busiest person. You have a lot of uh, interest. You have a lot of, you have, you have a lot of responsibilities and it never changed. Like God kept adding to your plate year after year. And, and one of the things that you and I bonded over was the preaching ambassador program and all of that. And mm-hmm. even though there's, there's a lot, we could have our own podcast on that whole program and what uh, people like Craig Maines, Tony Fightmaster, Brian Allen, what they put into that and were able to support it with, with their time, energy, and money. I have to ask you, as somebody who took all that stuff going into college, was able to uh, overcome a lot of things in the midst of college, how exactly, if I, if I have to ask, how did your view, uh, and which is one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on this podcast and for everyone else, is how did your view of Christianity change by going to a four-year four university, going into a ministry program where today, for example, you have a lot of Christian families uh, starting to pull back, maybe adopt different alternatives to college in four-year programs, but you still have a lot of the, you know, for example, a lot of the, um, the trades uh, like doctors, nurses, engineers, lawyers. I think we want those people to have education. And I, I certainly think education and ministry plays a certain role. But, you know, where were you and I, the conversations we had, like our freshman year, we're not the same conversations we had our senior year and are not the mm-hmm. same ones we're having today. So if you could track for me, how did your view of the church and Christ change while you're at a Christian university? Yeah. So I think, I think if I could say in one word, it would be broadened. Hmm. Um, in more words, it, it, it taught me that the church is so much is so much deeper and longer um, and wider than what um, than than what I knew before. Um, I mean, I had I mean, I had grown up in an, in a church plant. Um, then I had ultimately the next church that I was at for a while was kind of your average mid sized, you know, mid to bigger sized for, for Nazarene standards, um, church, uh, with all of the committees and district things and everything like that. So how was my view, um, of the, of Christianity impacted? 
it, it really, it really showed me that there's a lot of different kind of followers of Jesus out there and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Like that orthodoxy is actually pretty, pretty broad. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot of practices that are okay. There's a lot of truth out there that is pulled from scripture and experience and reason and, um, tradition that's, that's true and okay. Um, the, the church is way bigger and way more correct than what, um, I think you, you tend to, you tend to initially think like, oh, well, these groups of people over there, I don't know if they're really Christians. Well, really they are. Um, they just look different than you. Um, they believe a different direction than you. Um, but really orthodoxy is fairly broad. Um, and I think that really helped me. Oh, I mean, I just like probably most freshmen and probably most freshmen, sophomore, junior, senior ministry students. Um, I was continually humbled and reminded that this is Jesus's church. Like that, um, it really isn't up to us to decide what the view of Christianity should be. Um, and I think that's what, you know, that's what the classes at Olivet and then also being with different faith traditions, right? So it wasn't, it's not all Nazarenes that come to, um, come to Olivet. I mean, there's a little bit higher percentage of Nazarenes in like the school of theology and Christian ministry um, than other places, but it's still only like 40% maybe. Mm-hmm. So 60% was, was um, you know, other faith traditions or non-denominational. So, um, and then being able to be in a academic space where you're able to rub um, intellectually, like rub off of one another and challenge one another's thinkings and listen to the questions that they posed because that's how they were brought up. And so how do they, you know, interact and dialogue with this, you know, information that we're being given about scripture or about the church or about history. So um, broadened um, is, is I think the best way to say how my view of Christianity was impacted um, and, and deepened. And definitely deepened. Um, and I, I don't think you, I mean, I, I'm definitely a proponent of education. Um, I mean, I plan on going on getting graduate degrees. Um, but um, I, I don't I don't see anywhere else at this point in time, although I think it probably could happen in the, in, in the local church, um, where, where you kind of have that intellectual challenge in rigor um, that maybe, maybe, and you know, this isn't even kingdom language that you shouldn't be the smartest person in the room. Sometimes that's a dangerous place to be. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so I think that's, I think that is, I think that's probably the biggest thing. Yeah. And I, I certainly can, can play test. Like I can testify to that fact because over the course of the many classes. I mean, I, I'd have to go back through our transcripts. We'd have to, I, I honestly lose track how many overlapping classes. I remember specifically you and I, you're like one of the main per- people when I was signing up for an ministry class, I said, Jared, okay, what time are you taking this? I want to take it. Like we got to take it together here. Uh, and it was good as, as long as I think there was ever, like we had at least one class every semester 
after freshman year. I think it was on purpose uh, because I saw that that drive in you, that just that maturation uh, in you. I saw that integrity, and also I, what I love about you, Jared, is that you don't take yourself too seriously. Uh, you you know what you believe, you know why you believe it. But um, through my joking and through just a, through, throwing a little anecdotes out there, keeping the mood light, you never. You never cease to uh, just say, yeah, you know what? At the end of the day, we all could be wrong. You know, it, it's like we, I, my view of Christ, you mentioned that it's Jesus's church could certainly be wrong. And you weren't so, I don't know, what's the way of saying it? You were, you were not a monk. You weren't so, I am Jared. I study the Bible and nothing is funny. I know everything. Uh, well, that's people. no fun. No, no, it's not. And, and. And the thing is, is that you had to hold me down and still to this day, you hold me down. I still, you're the, you're the main person I go to, to bounce off uh, theological uh, points, discussions, or questions. And usually I'm the one freaking out, throwing things in my room. And you're the one saying, now, Michael, calm down. And, and I could definitely say mine was deepened. I don't know if mine was broadened until much later. Um, so college served its purpose. You know, I, I think for, for you, I mean, I know for you, where God has you, all of that certainly served what, what God had called you uh, there to do and to and eventually become. So how then has your view of church, given your circumstances, where I want to give you a, uh, a chance to tell, talk about where you find yourself today, what are you doing? Because you're not just a husband and a father. You, you have uh, your own, your own uh, blog. You have your own website. You have your own passions and desires and potentially... Uh, your own ministry and your own calling. So where does Jared Ritchie, where has Christ taken him since college that now that your church has been, your idea of church has been broadened and where do you find yourself today? Um, well, so currently I am serving as the discipleship and outreach pastor at College Church University Avenue, um, which is right across the street from Olivet. Um, Beautiful Beautiful church. I still find myself very close to Olivet. Um, And uh, I, although I have found that my title really doesn't mean anything um, because (laughs) I, I do a lot. So, um, and most is because, um, uh, this isn't tooting my own horn. It's more like a curse. Uh, the curse of people with ideas is that you have to follow through with them if you're like going to be taken seriously. <laughs> so it's like you have an idea and it's like, oh, this is a new thing. Like this is something that we're not doing or you're not doing right now, but it's your idea. So run with it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I am, I am privileged to be, you know, serving uh, um, under a leader, uh, Dr. Mark Quantrum who has given me the, the latitude to kind of uh, do a whole bunch of different things. So I've had several iterations officially of my, of my role here. Um, uh, I mean, I've seen over, I've overseen the building. Uh, so I was a building manager. That was a part-time job while I was still in college. Um, <laughs> and then oversaw hospitality. So our hospitality ministry and kind of did a, a relaunch of that a bit here. Um, and then I moved on to kind of discipleship, uh, which is really where I think my, my heart is. Um, although I don't get to do it as much as what I would like because of all the other things. Um, I moved on to discipleship 
and outreach. Um, and I've, I guess I've had this iteration for a while as community engagement for a while, but you know, we just kind of move things around. I also, um, so outreach, it's been interesting. Outreach has been interesting because my, my view of what outreach means, um, has changed quite a bit from, um, uh, I don't even really like the word outreach um, be, in part because I feel like we've divorced outreach from discipleship uh, because we have outreach ministries. That means that in our discipleship, we don't do it. So I would prefer even not to have the, the term outreach and do discipleship really well, because the result of really, of really being a disciple and good discipleship ministry is evangelism and reaching out to our community. Um, so um, yeah, not, not to get on a bunny trail there. So, but that's where, um, and then I've also overseen all of our communications for the church, um, graphics and media, uh, when COVID hit, I became a video producer, um, which has been wild. I, you know, <laughs> you know just kind of figuring it out, um, you know, oversaw, uh, an entire overhaul of our, you know, audio, video and lights system, um, at college church. Uh, so that we could do a really high quality stream um, for um, for everyone when we kind of resumed in person. We did some like at home stuff, you know, for like 22 weeks. Which, by the way, you guys did an amazing job. I will say you did a, a great, great job. God used you in phenomenal ways there, Jared. I will absolutely affirm that. Oh, well, appreciate that. Appreciate that. It was a lot of hard work, so it's good to hear every once in a while that mm-hmm. <laughs> it's used. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so now, you know, over, now kind of, you know, overseeing tech and media and, you know, I, I tend to have stuff put on my plate, develop it, grow it, and then hand it off to somebody else. Um, and I think that's probably why my title changes so much. Um, I think that's why we just stopped changing my title. Um, because uh, and that's really a passion of mine. Uh, I, I really see one of my primary responsibilities as a pastor is to equip other people. Um, so um, it, it, that, that's kind of at the heart of deprofessionalizing the ministry. So like technically I'm a professional minister, um, but really my hope and my hope and dream is that I am putting the time and energy into a ministry that really a full-time or, or professional quote-unquote person needs to do, um, but then builds it up so that it, one, lasts longer than just my tenure, and two, can really be handed off to even a lay person, um, and for sure a lay person, and then uh, I can then focus on something else that needs to be built up while, you know, a lay person is leading a ministry. So um, I'm really bouncing around all kinds, all kinds of places here. Um, but where I find myself currently, um, is, uh, we're finishing out a time where I was a point person, still kind of am a point person, um, for a parent affiliated church, uh, that we have up in the Ravenswood neighborhood of Chicago. Um, so we've been working towards there, you know, there were a church that was, you know, struggling. We, the college church like adopted them, um, three, four years ago now. Um, and we've been slowly working with them to kind of get them to be stable and being able to, instead of just surviving, to really, 
you know, pouring into and doing ministry in their community. And we're, and we're getting pretty close. I feel like, um, they're not as much financial trouble as they used to be. Um, they really have kind of reignited for, um, you know, what, what their purpose could be. So, um, so I've kind of led that initiative, uh, but now we're trying to figure out the digital age of how in the world do we do church when we have still people in homes and that now that we have an online presence, we now have regular attenders from six different states. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what do we do with that? How, what is our responsibility? How do we disciple people uh, when our really our philosophy of ministry is pretty incarnational? Um, it's community driven. It's being together. Um, so how do you do ministry that's incarnational, even when you're spread apart? Um, and that is a that's that's a whole new challenge that um, I'm currently up to my eyeballs in. Um, <laughs> yes, and it's it's fun. I enjoy it. Um, you know, it could lead to a lot of really cool things. It's making us think about ministry a little bit different, um, especially when we had a pretty strong in, in like incarnational in person. The local church is the only church kind of model, and we still think that. But it's okay. How do we be faithful to the people who? the Lord has brought to us from afar Um, because we still have a responsibility to them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so how do we do that? So that's kind of where I currently find myself um, in ministry. Um, And it's, it's been, it's, it's been a journey. It's been fun. Um, I would say that uh, this journey has, it's really hard going back and connecting where I'm at now and where I was at Olivet, um, where the, and you kind of need this space, but I was blessed to be able to really be involved here at College Church as a junior and senior. Um, I was actually on staff here for my last semester and a half. Um, and so that really helped make the transition. Uh, but the, and I, and, you know, and they, they actually require now every, ministry student to be to volunteer at a church from sophomore year all the way through their senior year and that is because you know the academic classroom can always be so clinical right absolutely and the and so you only have a clinical view of the church um and that actually makes you a little cynical um and you kind of have this 10,000 foot view of the church and it's, it's a lot easier just to say, well, this is wrong with it, or this is wrong with it, or you need to do it this way. Um, but I think what you realize when you actually get into it is that people are there like, you know, relationships and people mess with things. And like, you have to learn how to deal with that. It's not just moving piece pieces and parts around of ministry in the church. And this is how you do it. Like you have to work with the people that the Lord has entrusted to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been, a um, that's, that's, I think really been, you know, the, the, the big change from, you know, how I understood things in college to how I'm understanding things now. Um, you, you have to be okay with people interrupting um, people helping to shape, um, and the Lord using that. I mean, that's why we're the priesthood of all believers, um, and being open to that because we're ultimately servers. Like we ultimately serve. Um, 
I, my job is not to force my will upon anyone that I've actually been entrusted to serve. Um, so I think, I think that's probably been the biggest thing of where I was to where I'm at now and how I understand, how I understand the church, um, and ministry. And it's, it's, it's going from the very rigorous academic setting of the classroom, but then your, your path was eased by having a position in the, I guess the real setting you're, you're not in the lab any longer. You are in, mm -hmm. you're seeing the practical elements of your education you're seeing those ideas and concepts being lived out on a daily basis. And, and it, it, it's a much, okay, you want to talk about broadening your horizons a little bit, but you, you had the privilege of kind of being introduced to that before, uh, along the way, instead of just being thrown out there, like a lot of our brothers and sisters who, you know, really left Olivet, <laughs> either went to seminary and then they went right into the pastorate. There was mm -hmm. hardly any sort of like steps for transition. You've mentioned a couple of buzzwords that, is at the heart of where God has had you uh, from the very, very beginning that I ever met you is discipleship. But that is kind of a messy word, depending on what tradition you're in. Discipleship can be a lofty word. It can be an elusive thing. It could be something that people don't know about. And it's something that you with your, your passion project uh, on the trek seeks to differentiate the di like differentiate followership of Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus. Can you kind of, pitch on the track on the track for people and then what the I guess if you could give us the reader digest version of what's the difference between followership and discipleship and why should the average churchgoer know the difference yeah so um yeah i have launched this project called on the trek um i launched it and then and i thought i really had a you know a good direction of where i was going and then like if you went and checked it out now you're like there's like nothing here um but it's in, it's in full development. Um, so on the trek is ultimately a place for, you know, story and resources and everything. Um, but the ultimate goal is, um, which is what is kind of, it's a slow process because discipleship is, it's a framework for discipleship. Um, it's a holistic framework because discipleship should touch every area of our life. Um, and I think that's what's slowing it. It, you know, every time I think, Hey, I, I think I have something that's presentable. I'm like, Oh, but it doesn't, doesn't touch here. Like mm -hmm. this, like this needs to be touched. And, and it's not really, here's exactly what you need to do. It's more a framework is something that when something enters into your life, you're like, okay, what do I do with this? Like a framework gives you a place to put it. Um, a framework um, kind of is this litmus test of, you know, is this something that Jesus would have for me? Or is this something that the world would have for me? Or is this something that is supposed to be restorative or transformative in my life? Or is this something that really, I really is for the purpose of keeping me or holding me accountable or um, equipping me um, for something that the Lord is calling me to, or to a higher commitment or to a deeper le level of trust? um, or to a broader, broader vision of service. So I think that is that that's, that's the whole, that's kind of the, that's the broad, the broad thing. It's a framework for discipleship. Um, so, um, this is going to sound a lot more posh, I would say than what it is, but I'm currently working on a book for it. Um, and a discipleship, uh, journal, 
um, to go alongside of that, uh, that, you know, is help to help us in our daily lives. Um, and then, um, also, uh, some Bible studies and content and everything. Um, and I might be having a project that I'm working on with my wife and she listens to this. She's probably going to kill me. Oh. Um, oh no, uh, but, um, uh, but we, um, you know, exploring, you know, not, not, not to be, you know, competitive, but a husband and wife that we're, we're both trying to figure out what does it mean to faithfully be a disciple of Jesus in this world? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and tackling some of the, just, you know, similar to what you're doing, having a conversation about, um, you know, the things that, you know, really sh- we should be talking about in the realm of discipleship. Um, the things that we need to wrestle with in our culture uh, that impact us as disciples um, and how we should respond to it. Um, so anyway, so that's, that's kind of where we're going. The, the followership and the discipleship thing. Um, I think I'm a bit infamous for splitting hairs. Um, <laughs> Sometimes I know you've <laughs> called me and you've run stuff by me before and I'm like, well, I, I don't know, buddy. I, I don't really, I mean, I understand where you're coming from, but I think this is one that deserves that. Cause immediately when you say followership, discipleship, I think of John chapter six and Jesus feeding everybody lunch, I guess, to be, to be a little more common. And people are like, well, where's, where's the rest of our food? Uh, like, and then the people just were like, well, he's not going to feed us lunch all the time. Well, then why am I following him? And then, you know, Jesus turns and says, do you, you don't want to leave too, do you? And, you know, Peter's like, well, Lord, to whom shall we go? Like, I, I think of like, if there's one thing that summarizes in my mind, what you described to me over the years, it's that what it's the motive, I think is the difference. But yeah. you can have similar actions, but does it not come down to motive? Yeah. So it, no, it definitely does. And what's interesting about, um, oh, you're, you're putting me on the spot here. Um, you know, the, the John chapter six. I mean, it might be in a different account of that, of that, um, of that story that Jesus is like, okay, like I, I will give you something more to eat. Mm-hmm. Here's my body. Eat it. Here's my blood. Drink it. Um, and everybody's like, whoa, <laughs> like, no, like, see ya. Like we enjoyed the bread. We enjoyed the fish, but like, you're getting like, like that is crazy, especially to like a first century Jew, you know, that would have been so wrong, like so wrong what Jesus was saying, but yet it's so radical and intimate. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't do well with intimacy to be perfectly honest. Um, and I think that's why he turned to the disciples who, who were, who were with him um, day in and day out. And they're like, is this too much for you too? Hmm. Like, is this too much for you too? I mean, obviously they didn't leave. Uh, they're like, Lord, where else would we go? Um, and I think the difference, so without splitting hairs here, because it, it's hard because we use the term, I'm a follower of, of Jesus all the time. Like, and you could probably pick Nine out of, I don't know, maybe not that high, seven out of 10 churches and, you know, their mission statement or vision statement is going to say something about creating or doing something with followers of Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So I don't want to, I don't want to degrade it. That's not the purpose of it. It's not saying that, oh, we're not using the proper language, but it is, it's an important exercise, I think, to think, are we just like those who are just getting a transactional beneficiary relationship with Jesus? Are we, um, are we only following for the benefits that Jesus gives us? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and really, um, where that shifts and changes is, um, what Jesus says in, um, what Jesus says in Mark eight. Um, and I'm going to, I'm not going to open up the Bible, but I have a note, uh, that I'm just going to pull open here quick, um, uh, for, for this and, and Jesus in Mark eight, this has been, you know, this is, this is something that I'm trying, I'm working into the framework when it comes to our part of, part of it, when our, our, uh, relationship to our per- uh, possessions, but then also really where we start. So Jesus, like discipleship is actually fairly intense. Like we don't, we don't necessarily probably fully realize that. Uh, but when Jesus in Mark eight says, um, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So there, so there, Jesus is literally saying, whoever wants to be my disciple has to deny themselves and pick up a cross and follow me. Um, and, and I think the difference of discipleship versus followership, even though literally Jesus used the term follower is that the difference between a disciple and a follower might just be a follower doesn't have a cross on their back and a disciple does. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and, and that might be a little hard to distinguish who is who. And, and I don't, I don't, I don't fully, I mean, to a certain extent, it's our responsibility as leaders in the church to, to kind of know and to try to figure out that's part of, that's part of leading people in, in, in discipleship. Um, but the difference between a follower and a disciple is that we're all following Jesus. It's just whether or not we have a cross on our back. And we, we always ask the question, um, it's interesting that you asked me at the very beginning, and this isn't like, this isn't a slide at all, because I don't know if I have the, I don't know if I can faithfully answer the second one yet or fully. And that is, you know, we asked the question, how do you come to know Jesus? Like, when did you ask Jesus into your life? And that's really a question of salvation and discipleship just does start at salvation for sure. Um, but when we're talking about this, like, this kind of discipleship that Jesus is talking about is that if you want to be my disciple, then you will do this. The, a question of discipleship or maybe a beginning of full holistic discipleship is, okay, we can answer the question, when did Jesus come into your life? Like, when did you ask Jesus into your life? When did you accept the salvation from Jesus? The major question of discipleship might just be, and when did you die? So, you know, Jesus came into my life when I was, you know, five or six years old. But when did Jared die? You know, when um, it's like what Bonhoeffer says is um, when the Lord calls a person, he bids them come and die. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, 
And that's something that we're not necessarily always comfortable with. Um, and, and something that is really difficult with discipleship. And this is why discipleship is holistic um, and should be. It touches every area of our life because we're literally talking about a new creation being created in us. Like when we die, that means everything that our life is attached to is, has been weakened or severed and something new has to be created into it. Um, and so I think that's, uh, that's really, I think when we get into the heart of what, what discipleship is, who a disciple is and, uh, the difference of a difference of a follower. And the reality is we always start as a follower. I mean, I've, I've rarely met somebody that said like, yep, I asked Jesus into my life and I have completely died to self and picked pick up my cross and fully like, and fully live into that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all a journey. Um, yeah. and, and that's and what the, I'll say real quick. I think for those people yeah. that I have heard to say that it's usually after, after a life lived in like a lot of like in, in absolute sin where it's a, it's a complete rejection of God. And then there's this moment uh, of something and it's a complete turn. It's, it's the, yeah. it's the, uh, Paul and the, on the Damascus road moment where it's like, I am this. It's not like for, for the, and that's what's interesting. You want to talk about dying to self. It seems as if maybe sometimes Christians, it takes a lot longer of a press. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, yeah. I mean, when, when, when you've constantly grown up around the church, you don't really, you don't have that dramatic moment. No. Um, there's part of me that wishes like, I would have had that dramatic moment because it would be so much easier to see how life is before and how life is after. Um, but that's a good point. But, but, but the faithfulness of Jesus, even throughout my constant falling into and falling out of, or falling out of discipleship and just being a follower, you know, and I think we can ebb and flow with this a little bit. I mean, I think sometimes we're really into it, we're really digging in, and maybe it gets too hard, or maybe a life circumstance changes that wraps us up, and we like we drop the cross off our shoulder. Um, and sometimes we need to learn how to pick it back up, and that's okay. Like, and I think that's the, it's not a condemnation thing. Um, I think we just need to be aware of even what Jesus is saying here is that if we're constantly clinging to our cross, then our life will be saved. I mean, that's kind of this that, kind of paraphrasing, like what, what's kind of going on in that scripture. Mm-hmm. Cause if we're clinging to other things, trying to save our life, we're definitely going to lose it. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. There's no, no firm foundation. You know, that I'm so like, this is so cool that you're mentioning this because it, this is something that my boss, uh, Mike Perry, who was on the very first episode, very first interview, he had, we actually talked about this this past week. He actually said, I, he, he was a little frustrated because he, this is an exact topic that he, you know, growing up his entire life in the church, uh, you know, he, he has six kids. You know, he's, uh, I'm thinking he's 36, 37, and he is, he's never heard a topic like I'm like, I've always heard, you know, you're supposed to, pick up your cross and follow Jesus. But like when you're talking about dying to yourself, you're looking at the language of Paul and Romans, like what exactly does that mean? And that it's such a, 
I'll say it's difficult to, even if you are a biblical scholar, to put that into, into just layman's terms. What is that? What are we talking about? If someone's listening to this podcast and say, yeah, Jared, that's great. Like I've heard that passage my entire life and I'm, I'm struggling. I got a lot of other stuff on my plate right now. There's a lot of stresses in life. But when you're talking about dying to yourself, what does that actually mean? What is Christ wanting me to do in, in like the practical sense? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That that's, that's the challenge that faces us ministers. How do we, how do we, how do we put that into the real lives of people? So I think this is where, um, So this, so this is where my, my head has been at in the, in the framework that I'm working on. So it just sounds like a commercial or something like that. It really isn't, but it's just where, it's just where my head is at. Um, it really comes down to how we understand our relationship with Jesus and how we're living into it. Um, and, and what we're allowing him to do in our life, because, you know, I don't know if I heard this some, I know I've heard it somewhere. I don't know who, who it's original with, but like Jesus is a gentleman. Right. Mm-hmm. So like sometimes Jesus like comes in and like kicks through your life, but like for the most part, he's invited it. Um, we allow, um, and that's part of our free will. Um, he, we, we, we allow Jesus to do things in our life. And so we really should be asking ourselves, in my opinion, it, it's hard to, it, it really, I think, is hard to say what is dying, like, you know, just very simply, what does dying to self mean? Because our self is so entangled with so many different things. Um, so in the framework, um, and, uh, and as a side note, it's, you know, the, the, the website is called on the Trek, but Trek is, is it's the Trek framework. Um, partly that actually came up with an, like it came from an anagram, um, anagram is that, is, I, I think that's the right word, mm-hmm. um, of, of the fruit of discipleship and that's transformation, restoration, equipping and keeping and, and happen just spell the word Trek, which is an arduous journey that you do with, with one another. Right. That's, that's a, that's a way to translate it. Right. So it's arduous. It's not, it's not the easiest. Um, and so, so really you have to understand, um, you have to understand that disciple being a disciple of Jesus is a state of being like, it isn't something that you do. Um, and, and I think once we get that, it's, it's, it's who we are as a person. Um, then we can start to feel and see the things that are incongruent with who Jesus is. Um, especially with, if we're trying to align ourselves with who we are, um, with the person of Jesus, if we're trying to imitate Jesus. Um, so, um, a, a definition of discipleship that I'm working from is that, uh, is someone who obeys or submits to the will of the father. So a disciple is someone who submits to the will of the father, imitates the life of the son and is filled by the Holy spirit. Um, and so you have, you have this, the entire person of the in, entire persons, right? So uh, three persons in one um, of the Trinity 
literally coming in and transforming and shaping your life. And, and the ground in which we sow this discipleship, so that's who we are, right? And the ground in which we sow this discipleship is relationships. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think that we can't think about discipleship as something that we do. I mean, it's kind of, um, even though literally like D-I-S-C-I-P, um, P is in here. So for like, you know, you get discipline from that, right? We have disciplines and, you know, we hear a lot of times spiritual disciplines. Mm-hmm. And then we, we hear of, oh, we like, we are disciplined. You need to discipline your child, right? So there's this negative connotation um, towards it. Furthermore, there's this, um, the spiritual discipline, sometimes it almost is just like, you need to work out for Jesus, right? <laughs> so, right. Yeah. so like, um, you need to build your muscle, which that I think that's partially true. And maybe this is me splitting hairs again. Um, but really, I it focus a lot about on doing. And I think something that has done us a disservice when we're talking about and this is a really, really long way around to answer the question that you, um, in part, I think because one, my head has been so into it. And two, I think I will eventually have a simpler answer, but um, I think sometimes we've given too simple of answers for discipleship and dying to self. You yeah. just need to do, you just need to do X, Y, Z. Lines, yeah. Yeah, the, these uh, ten-step programs to better discipleship, a better health of the Lord. I mean, come on, it's so broad, uh, it's so generic. There's, it's like the least amount of effort. I, I've said it before. It's like you, you talk about outreach, talk about discipleship. It's almost as if yes, the church. Yeah, we're almost obligated to do all these things, and so instead of putting in effort, we choose the path of least resistance, the least amount of sacrifice, time, or energy, and then we call it. Yes, we have discipleship. Yes, we have we have outreach. We have this ministry, and meanwhile because we're too busy with our own lives. We're, we're too busy not paying attention to the cross that's in our backyard that we failed to pick up today, uh, that it, it ultimately, it comes down to, yeah, well, here's what you need to do. Cause here's what's worked for me, which we know is, is too broad. I mean, I, I think, I think that's just intellectual slothfulness, uh, because I think these things that we're talking about deserve better answers. And I'm, I'm so glad to see like, that's where your God's continuing to pull you because I think there's this gap. I think there's this void in, in our mainline Protestant evangelical churches where this question uh, is being ignored or the topic's just not being addressed. I mean, discipleship is a, is a word that the Reformed churches have never shied away from, and they've all constantly talked about it. But in like the Wesleyan holiness uh, movement, it's not, that was not really the emphasis on, on ours. It was always it was entire sanctification or holiness was our, was our big word that we borrowed. I'm like, well, that's great. You, you show me what holiness means, but if we're just a holy consecrated people, just like, just like monks in a cave somewhere, then what good is that for our fellow man, our, our people in our neighborhoods, our towns and our cities? Yeah. And on the Wesleyan holiness tradition, I feel like we veered so far off of the people that started this tradition. (laughs) I mean, if you look at, if you look at John Wesley, I mean, he would say that you only need to own as many clothes as you absolutely need and everything else you need to give to the poor. I mean, he, I mean, 
it wasn't, and it wasn't this, and it wasn't this specialized social justice concept he had in his mind. It was, this is just how, this is just how disciples of Jesus should be. Right. This is what we Um, do. Yeah, this is what we do. This is, this is who we are. And, um, and it really was this holistic touching every area of our life type of thing. Um, without getting political, I mean, the church has kind of been co-opted a little bit by capitalism and, and the, the economics of it, right. And the efficiencies of, 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 of capitalism where, where you, if you can just do this, this, and this, it's enough, right? Because it, it, it gets, it gives you like this, like gratification that you've accomplished something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, um, and that's, and, and that's probably, that's probably oversimplifying it. Um, but it really has been shaped by our American culture because you don't actually see it as much around the world. You more see it in the U.S. Um, this kind of, um, but on the on the holiness part, yeah, we kind of we've kind of missed missed the boat of what holiness really is. Because if you really look at holiness, holiness is like it's supposed to be holistic. Therefore, touching every area of your life. And so when we're teaching holiness, we should be talking about this like holistic, almost invasive type of discipleship in our life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not action or doing the the right thing or the or here's all the right things. Here are all, here's all the social things that you can't be a part of. That's how we keep a, ourselves set apart and holy. No, being holy means that we actually have given ourselves up so that somebody else can live through us. And and how is that not completely different than the world. I mean, yeah. it is. I mean, because because everywhere else in the world, you're constantly trying to save your life, right? You're constantly trying to hold on or pull the strings of part of your life. Well, what if there is literally an entire community that only that literally embodied Jesus? I mean, how different would they look? Um, they would look incredibly different from, for, from everyone around them. So, um, the other thing that I think has been dangerous just to add on to this point is our, the, the vast consumption of information that has replaced discipleship. Hmm. Um, yeah, you know, we need to do Bible studies and don't hear me say we can't do Bible studies, but just studying the Bible doesn't do anything like unless you've allowed the Holy spirit to shape you in that study of how you interact with your world with it. Yeah. So just knowing what the Bible says doesn't do anything. There are plenty of people that know what the Bible says and they don't follow Jesus. Yeah. Um, Say say that one more time. Well, yeah. So there's plenty of people who know what the Bible says, but they don't follow Jesus. And this is what Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, even though he's talking about um, he's talking about food offered to idols and everything, mm-hmm. but he says this, we all know that all of us possess knowledge, right? That's great. We all possess this knowledge, but this knowledge puffs up while love builds up. If anyone imagined that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. 
But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Um, and so we, we've replaced discipleship with, well, I've accomplished this book study and this Bible study. And I listened to this podcast and, you know, I'm going through this devotional in the morning. And so in a way, not that I have all the answers or anything like that, because there's plenty of other things out there that are great. In a way, we're literally adopting through that information, a whole bunch of different frameworks that we don't know how to differentiate between them. So we, 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 we consume this information about discipleship. We consume this information about, about um, following Jesus, but we don't know what, it, what to do with it. So really just kind of gets dumped out, right? And we just replace it with more information, with the next study, with the next this, you know, and maybe some of it will take root. But, but, but what Paul is saying here is that we really shouldn't be that concerned about like this, in, this acquisition of knowledge. We should be concerned about loving and being known by God. Yeah. And... Uh, go, go please, please continue. Sorry. I just, that's just a lot to, it's just a lot to think about. It sounds like, it sounds like overall, it's like the church has turned into a classroom uh, and a scholastic setting uh, because you go to learn, but, but it's the church that steps in and says, now go and do, and do this likewise. I mean, what you're talking about is like first John uh, chapter four, and then the book of James of, you know, just having like t- talking about connecting the knowledge and then not doing anything with it, you know, faith without works being dead. And if you have yeah. this love of God, you're supposed to do something with it, just as if God did something with us as like by sending his son, it'd be different and say, Hey, I, I love you guys. And then he didn't do anything. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, I think, yeah, it's, it's kind of a paradigm shift, right? So, and, and, and once again, this is more of a problem for us in the West. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, this, and, espe- and yeah. especially the U.S., right? So, but we're not satisfied with not knowing. I mean, we all have, I mean, America's culture has the biggest case of FOMO. Like. Yeah, fear of in, missing out. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, I mean, I mean, the fact of the addiction that we have to social media and the 24 hour news cycle and everything, we are literally addicted to information. Yeah. Um, I mean, we talk about money being God, but we don't talk about knowledge and information being a God. Hmm. Um, and, and what Paul is saying is that here, he's actually saying when, he, when the, the Greek for puffs up here is actually to like push out. Yeah. To like push away. Um. So, so our knowledge, we have to be careful because even our knowledge of Jesus can push away people, right? Of course. Um, and, but if anyone loves God, so the more important thing is not just to know about God, just to love God. And the, the, the thing of the knowledge that's really important, that should be important to us is that we're known by him. And we and, and and we're aware of that. So, what information doesn't do is it doesn't increase our relationship with God and with others, 
and it doesn't it doesn't increase our awareness of God. And I think that's been something that's really been missing that we don't teach or practice is trying to understand and seek the awareness of God in our life. Um, this is where um, the early church fathers did it way better. Um, this is where the practice of spiritual direction, which is largely not used in evangelical circles, um, because I don't know, we think it's weird or whatever. Um, uh, John Wesley used it. He didn't use it. Call he didn't call it spiritual direction um, because he feared that the term direction or the idea of direction could lead to an abuse of power, um, which he's probably he's probably he's probably fairly right in that. So he used the term spiritual guidance, right? Guiding somebody. And really the whole goal of that was to bring awareness of God in your life. And so then you could interact with God in your daily life. Like you could see how he's working and moving and go alongside of that. If we don't have an awareness of what God is doing, then we're just going to continue on with our lives, how we want to continue on with our lives. And part of the Lordship of Jesus is that he's the Lord of every second of our life. Like that should be our goal. And if he's moving in a particular way in a particular day, we should, we, if we don't have that awareness, you know, we're just, we're moving in a different line. It's like those moments that you're like, you know, I really need to do this. The Holy Spirit's telling me this is something I need to do today, or this is somebody that I need to reach out with. That's an awareness and responding to that. And I feel like the more we do that and step into those checks, the more aware, like the more aware that we become. And so Really, it, the we've been co-opted by back to that we've been co-opted by information, and instead of relationship, right? And and really, discipleship does not happen outside of relationship. Um, the ground in which we sow the seeds of discipleship is our lordship relationship, our relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and our neighborship relationships. Right. And I know I created the word neighborship, but it works. Right. Yeah. So our neighborship relationship with with everyone. I mean, everyone is our neighbor. So um, and people are like, well, enemies aren't your neighbors. Well, like you usually have to treat your enemies better than your neighbors. Scripture says mm-hmm. <laughs> so almost. So just be careful with, with saying that. So so we have this neighborship. Everything happens in those everything happens in, in a relationship kind of plane or field, right? Uh, to stick with the ground. So in the, in the field of relationship, this is where discipleship is sown into. And not only into our lordship and neighborship relationship, but we're also called to be stewards. So we have a stewardship relationship with the earth and with our possessions. Um, and this is something that really, that really takes on to us as well is that one, like, the ultimate goal of Adam and Eve was that they were to be good stewards of the, of the creation that God had created. Right. So we, we do have that kind of innate, like we are to be stewards, but then also like everything that we have, if we're truly living, following Jesus should be used for the sake of Jesus. Right. Um, that's probably pretty strong. Like the, I don't know how I can use this paper clip here, you know, for Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's kind of this idea of we, especially, especially in the West, we have this really strong attachment to our possessions. 
And so we need to be aware of the relationship and what we're sowing into our possessions um, and what we shouldn't be sowing into our possessions. Um, and I think instead of information, if we, if, if we don't sow our discipleship into information and knowledge, but we sow our discipleship into relationships, I feel like that is really the fertile ground in which like every area of our life gets touched. Because really, if you think about it, our lives are touched and shaped by relationships. It's hardly ever shaped by knowledge, right? Because the knowledge has to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. Knowledge also interacts with relationship. It interacts with you take knowledge that you get and you talk with somebody. So if I get something that I'm like, whoa, this is mind blowing. What do I do? You got to like, share it with somebody. Yeah. I got to share it with somebody. So not even, so knowledge doesn't even stand on its own. Like I call up my buddy, Michael, and I'm like, Hey, I just got that. Like, I just learned this thing. This is crazy. What do you think about it? Yeah. And so it's no longer the knowledge that's really shaping anything. It's the knowledge filtered through the relationship that we have. And would, would you say then, I guess, practically, uh, and I'm saying that this is maybe an abstract that the idea of dying to oneself, um, is, is putting in a proper relationship, a God of universe versus where we think God should be, um, is, I think maybe it's a proper ordering of our relationship to God. Are we at the center of the relationship with God or is God at the center? I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's, is getting close to it, but you're talking about yeah, relationship. No. I mean, it's just putting it, putting it maybe hopefully with some layman's terms. And that, that's something I've been trying to tell my congregation when trying to speak to them about motive and almost all these difficult things we've been talking about. I, I keep asking them, who is at the center of your life? Who is at the center yeah. of this conversation? Is it my idea of what God should be and what God ought to do? Or is, is it what God is? first and foremost. And so I, I don't know, we, we actually talked about that with when me and you were going back and forth uh, a week ago on something totally separate. Um, no, but you've, you know, I, I think this is, I think we're onto something and I, I know we're not going to stick to dates and times, but my gosh, if you need someone to write the forward to your book, I, I seriously, I, I want to copy that book as soon as it's written, Jared, because I, this is something that when I see you, this is just in an outworking, outworking and outflowing uh, result of where what of the seeds that God had sown in you way back when we first met. Cause like the, you're, you're like, un, like you are a holier person. I think you're a more godly person than, than where you were at eight years ago, but you're still you, like you haven't changed as far as your, your vigor for Christ. It's just that he's been able to take that and, and do so many beautiful things with it. So I, I really do appreciate that understanding. And I, I want to pivot to something else that you had actually brought up um, in, in just this kind of perspective, this evangelical culture that we find ourselves in now. I'm wondering from your perspective, now that we've been out of college and you've been able to deal with some good things with denominations and some, maybe some lower things, maybe some disappointments to say the least. I'm not asking you to divulge anything. You know, I've, I've witnessed the same thing. And I'm wondering if the battles that we fight interdenominationally. I'm wondering if that is because Satan really has a handle on what's important and what isn't important because you talk about being co-opted. Some of these ideas that are floating out there now 
just in the wild that are starting to really, really hit at our, the heart of what does it mean to be a Bible following church? It's like Satan's doing a brilliant job of, you know, don't pay attention to what the left hand is doing and let me keep you guys distracted with denominationalism. I mean, that's the one thing that, that changed for me is there were certain groups of people I loathed theologically. I think they're absolutely uh, crazy. And God had to humble me uh, with the exact um, same thing uh, that you had talked about is that God's much broader and that those people are Christians. It took me a long time to realize that, yeah, I need to stop complaining about that. Look what's happening. It's like this invasion of the rank. So do, do you think denominationalism is, is starting to like just denominationalism is starting to grow tired and like the mainstream people are like actually getting tired of it. So. Hmm. I think, I think people in a way might be growing tired of it. Um, and I think it's because they don't see how change can happen. Right. So it's, it's, it's the whole thing with this, with institutions, the larger the institution, the harder it is for the institution to change. Um, it seems right. Um, and at least for widespread change to, to, to take place in part, because you're wanting to protect the institution and that's really done out of, out of a good heart. And so this isn't really me trying to be critical, but for, for, for example, for in, in my tradition, the Church of the Nazarene, I think the number is, and I don't know, I may be wrong here. I think it takes, it'll, because of the process, it, it would take a minimum of 12 years for um, something to be changed in our articles of faith. Mm-hmm. So if we felt like there is an error um, or improper language, um, as the church, as the denomination matures, right. Um, and, you know, we're constantly looking over, are we communicating the proper things? You know, nothing, it's not, nothing usually super drastic that changes, but language is important, right. Um, language creates realities. And so we need to be as clear as possible in our language. And so that leads to changes. But it's going to take, it would take 12 years. And that's if there isn't a a hiccup in the process. And if you think about what the world was like 12 years ago, now, it feels like an entirely different world. And if we can only imagine at the rapid rate of change that's happening in our culture and society, what what the world is going to look like in in 12 years from now, then we're also probably going to be living in a, in a very different world then. So a change that's instituted now would never actually fully be accepted for another 12 years. Now, of course, people could accept it at a local level and start operating that way. But I think that's where denominationalism struggles a bit, um, is, is change. Um, also, I think that so den- I'm not against denominations. I think denominations should give resourcing and accountability, right? Right. Yeah. And well, I they, say well, that they also that, well, they also reflect tr- like different cultures. 
Yeah, like, absolutely. Like like it's 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 diverse, much like the kingdom of God. For me, it's basically like First Corinthians twelve. So sorry to interrupt yeah. you. I, I think no. they are absolutely yeah. good. It's just the divisions that's sown in between all of us. I'm starting to say like, I think this is the battle that Satan wants us to fight because we're too distracted to realize that the real fight's on our front door and has actually come inside our house. <laughs> so I have a quote from my brother who's a pastor in Northern Indiana. He was, he was dealing, I mean, not dealing with, but he was preaching a message on um, kind of the political co-option of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of a great quote. It's stuck in my head. And I think it's so true. And it, and it goes to this point of, um, he said that we're down here playing checkers with who we think is our enemy. But Satan and his cronies are playing chess and we're getting dusted. Yeah. So like we've picked out who our enemies are and we're playing checkers with them. Right. Oh, who can skip who and who can block who and all that kind of stuff. Right. But like. But like Satan is 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 masterful at what he does. And. He's going to use these divisions, these really, once when you get down to it, they're pretty piddly. Yeah. Right. Like we don't even like disagree on most orthodox things. No, no. So I I could say probably the biggest, the biggest practical one is probably women in ministry because of what it prevents a whole group of people from doing. Uh, But that's probably the biggest one. I don't see, a, I mean, we're talking about mainline Orthodox churches. We're not talking about, which is what I'm going to get to in a moment, but we're talking about the Orthodox uh, traditional, traditional churches, right? Yeah. No. Yeah. So I think that you, you just, we make, we, oh, we make mountains out of molehills. That's what we do. Right. Um, and I, I've only seen that people people want these institutions to work. So denominationalism, people want them to work. Like people are trying to affect change in these denominations. I think that denominations need to learn how to let it, let things go. Um, and I, I mean, I totally agree. I just see denominations more as we need the Baptist to really point to the strong view of scripture and um, and the sovereignty of God. Yeah. Right. Like, and, and we, we need Nazarenes to remind the church global of that holiness is possible and we are to be set apart. And, um, that this is something in sanctification and sanctification is something that, that, that the Lord desires for us. Um, we need the Lutherans to remind us of, we need the Lutherans and the Catholics and the Episcopalians to remind us of, of that our faith is inherited, um, that we are, it is by faith alone that we, that we are saved. And uh, we need the Presbyterians to continue to push forward that there is power and significance in the proclamation of the word. Um, so like, that's the, we, we look at our differences and be like, how can I convince them of my point of view? Right. And not, yeah, I mean, I, I, 
because the thing is, is that the last thing I want, and, and the, this is getting down into to, to maybe like racial talk too, is that I, I've always been told that like, if I'm the one championing that those people, whoever those people are, they just need to agree with me. Cause once they agree with me, everything's going to be fine. And once they come over here, I then can learn from them, but that don't ask me to step out and, and leave where my setting is and go over there. Uh, and for me, it's like, wait a minute. If all of these, I mean, some of these denominations, like you said, and what was been, been stated before are reflections of the culture. Look at the 50 States. I mean, there's ideally 50 different dialects, 50 different colloquialisms that you have in the United States, different histories for each state here. And I want to talk about just the West in, in broad, but here in just the United States, uh, I mean, the church culture, that's why we have like Southern Baptist versus just Baptist. They're a reflection of a different culture. Does that mean it's bad? No, it's just that I, those people have that. God has revealed himself in that way. And I'm not talking about the detractors. I'm not talking about the, her, the heretics. I'm not talking about the misrepresentations or the caricatures. I'm talking about the true Orthodox people. For me, same thing when it comes to race. And what should one church do for another church? The battle that Satan has us fighting is at the moment. It's like, wait a minute. I don't like, because that church exists, that's a beautiful thing. I don't want that church to dissolve and be absorbed into something else. And I don't want my, my stuff to dissolve and go into something else. What happens if we were just all the church? Like the idea that like the most segregated time of day is Sunday service. I don't, if we're limiting church and it was only a building on Sunday mornings for an hour, then I would say there's more of a critique, but if what you talk about discipleship, if our everyday living out our faith and our relationship is done on the other, you know, whatever the amount of hours in a week are besides like minus one, if that's where it's done really, then I don't understand what the problem is. You know, for me, I'm just getting really sick and tired of the culture, educating the church and leading the church. Like, huh, we've had racial problems in this country. I, We've uh, we've oppressed uh, different different people, different orientations, and we've we've singled them out as if they're the scum of the earth. Like, well, this is just news to us now. Like, I'm just getting really sick and tired of the church going, oh, well, I, we we probably should do something about that. And what it looks like is the culture leading our hand and teaching us. And so for me, I think sometimes our motive gets skewed because we're like we're doing it just because we were told to do it, not because we weren't wrong. And not because that we shouldn't experience rebuke and therefore should repent and change our behavior. But my question is, wait a minute, wait a minute. The, the bigger thing is, why are we just doing it now? If we were the church the entire time, if our discipleship was true, our right relationship, then shouldn't we have already been doing this? And people will say, yes. But now that we've been woken up, I'm like, wait, wait a minute. We've trusted these people for so many years to lead us, these big denominational leaders, pastors, singers, songwriters, authors, did it, did God just not reveal himself to all these people? Or is the church being highly reactive and trying to make up for this guilt that it's had on so many fronts? And our motive is just a little off because we're trying to appease and say, I'm sorry versus repenting to God first and saying, what, what's our next step? I, I don't know. That's just, that's a lot there. I'm sorry. That was a, that, that's, that's where I'm starting to get frustrated. It has nothing to do with the culture. It has to do with 
what we're doing as a church. And I'm talking about every single church right now. Yeah, no, I, no. So I, I agree. Um, it's pretty sad when the culture of the world is what wakes up the church. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, and I think it's because, so one of the critiques of the Roman Catholic church is that whenever there's a papal decree, they really can't go back on it. <laughs> right. So, because, because the Pope is the vicar of Christ, um, they have a hard time going back on it. So they have to very, they have to be careful on how they go back on things or else otherwise, you know, a Pope got it wrong. Right. So that's, that's a critique of, that is a, that is a, that's a general critique, not necessarily mine it kind of is, but it's a general critique <laughs> of the, of, of the Roman Catholic church. But like, but it says something, at least for the Roman Catholic Church, that they're trying to have to figure out, oh, we got it wrong. Now we have to try to figure out how we're going to make it right without saying we got it wrong. So that's kind of weird. But like we push and say that people need to confess and repent. Well, that's true of organizations and institutions as well. Yeah. And we need to learn how to do that because the Southern Baptist convention does not believe that any decision that they made in the past should stand. So they right. shouldn't have a problem coming out and saying like our organization, our people that we have now historically associated ourselves with got it wrong. And this is how we're changing. This is how we're moving forward. Same thing with the Nazarene church If the Nazarene Nazarene church said, Hey, we got it wrong back then. Like as much as we need to have, we need to have self-awareness of our sin and, and voluntarily going into repentance, right? We also need to have institutional awareness of corporate sin and corporate as in the whole body, not corporate as in like business and, and accept that and say corporately, institutionally, this is how we're going to repent. Um, and being open and honest about it, because the reality is, is that the, the sin happened publicly. And so this whole, those, this whole business of it's being handled internally. Oh yeah. It's it, it literally all that, literally all that communicates in this current day and age is they're sweeping it under the rug. Yeah. Um, so I think that is something that, and also I always believe the pendulum swings. And so like, and then my follow-up is, so just stay in the middle, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And, and I could be wrong with this, but I'm pretty sure the greatest force that is on the pendulum is when it's, it hits its center point, right? Yes. So that is when we have the greatest force, right? When we hit the center point, that is the, that is the truest power that we have, not on the upswing, not on the backswing, not on the opposite upswing, not on the opposite backswing when we're in the middle, right? So we shouldn't just be having racial reconciliation conversations now. We should have been having them decades ago. Yes. And we, we shouldn't just be talking about um, the church and the LGBTQ community now because the culture is bringing it up. This is something the church should have been talking about for decades. Yes. Um, I mean, for forever, really. But like... 
if the church sees that something is happening in culture, that's part of being countercultural instead of anti-culture. So anti-culture, I mean, this is again splitting hairs, but anti-culture is standing against. Counterculture is responding to. Yeah. Yeah. So instead of it's not dismissive. It doesn't take away that it does it's not saying your pain is worthless or your cry for justice is it falls on deaf ears. It's it can speak to, I mean, it's just empathy. It's called Christian empathy and love, saying, I hear you, I understand you. Let's work together on this biblical response to that pain, to that crisis, not just either uh, that's all dumb or I'm just going to put up blinders or, okay, um, as a laundry list, it's kind of like you're making a deal and um, in in not taking it to court. It's like, all right, let's make a deal. Let me give me your laundry list of items that you want. We're just going to give it to you. Yeah, we love to do settlements. Yeah. Right? Yes. So in, instead, of, instead of hashing it out, we're like, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll work out a deal and a settlement of, and then everybody's going to everybody's gonna be okay, right? But I think, and I totally agree. It is Christian empathy. And it's, I hear you. I, I hear you. I'm, I hear you and I'm listening. And not only that, I will enter into your pain and injustice. Yeah. And I think that's the further step. That's the further step of, of, of empathy. It's, it's, being able to setting ourselves aside, this is also dying to self, right? Self, this is part yeah. of dying to self. And so that we can enter into the pain and suffering of others so that we can come alongside and show them Jesus in it. That it is, and that's not just true of pain and suffering. We, we also will have insurmountable joy if we just set ourselves apart being able to enter into the, the joy and celebration of others as well. Um, so I think, um, I don't even know how we got on this. So I don't even know how to bring it back. Um, <laughs> it's, it's okay. It, really, because oh, oh, please continue. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, like, the reason why I'm coming to this is this realization that there, there is, there is a real fight to be had here. It's, it's not, it's, it's, the fact that organizations are made of people and we all say, oh, yeah, we're all human. You know, we, that's a colloquialism that's used all the time in the church is that, you know, or it's made up a bunch of people, all a bunch of flawed people. It's like, we say that just as a platitude and that's all it is because we don't, when it comes to dealing with the ramifications of that, we're like, yeah, we'll just kind of, kind of sweep it under the rug or go. Yeah. Yeah. So what's your point? I'm like, wait a minute. Um, no, I, can we actually, deal with the ramifications of human sin and, you know, corruption, whatever you want to use to describe it. These, this is a real fight, but when our denominations are so are already splitting hairs on things that we, in essence, don't matter stuff that I would be ashamed when I'm standing before the throne of God saying I spent X amount of years fighting against whether or not um, the, the pew was a different color or, you know, they just don't, they don't believe the by all of the Bible. It's like, uh, they still believe in the efficacy uh, of Christ's sacrifice, but yet they they don't believe in young earth creationism. Um, so therefore, they don't belong in heaven. Like, do I want to be that person when God says, so why? Can you tell me why you spent so much time on this? What what do you believe you were accomplishing? Uh, <laughs> I don't want to have to answer that. Uh, uh, you know, and the judge asked me that question. But also at the same time, what's, what this is doing is distracting us from this this exact thing of this overreactive settlement 
in my opinion, of the church. I don't know if you saw this. And this is, what's, this is what, uh, what I want to end with. Is the, it's the covert infiltration of the Orthodox Church. Of teachings that are just completely heretical. That are now becoming more overt or more seen. Grace Point Church, Nashville, Tennessee, three weeks ago, put on their Facebook page um, the following. It said, as progressive Christians, we're open to the tensions and inconsistencies in the Bible. We know that it cannot live up to the impossible modern standards. We strive more clearly to articulate what Scripture is and is not. So this is their online bulletin previewing what that Sunday message is going to be. And this is what's, what's, what's very strange, is this is what they, they say the Bible is. They say it's a product of community. It's a library of texts. It's multivocal, a human response to God, living and dynamic. Now, knowing that it's 66 books, 39 authors, over 4,000 years, different literary genres, different messages contained therein. Absolutely, it's a product of community. Of course, it's a library text. It's multivocal. It's a human response because it's God giving these revelations to man. And of course, we believe it's a living, dynamic, breathing book. So that's what's hilarious is I agree with all of those. But this is what they say the Bible is not. The word of God. Okay, that's the first is not. It's not the word of God. It is not self-interpreting, so the Bible does not reveal itself. It's not a science book. It's not an answer or a rule book. It's not inerrant or infallible or without error. These things, which I think mainstream were brought into by Rob Bell and Love Wins, and that kind of brought this entire movement, which started in the late 90s, into the mainstream uh, lexicon of Protestantism. I think is starting now in response to a lot of things of saying, hey, there's some difficult passages in the Bible that I can't explain. And yeah, you know, the Bible, and, and I'm being I'm being sarcastic here, the Bible does endorse slavery. The Bible is racist. The Bible is sexist. Uh, so you know what? We're going to apologize for that. And we are still going to acknowledge that it's important, but it's not the word of God because God's not racist. He's not homophobic. He's not, he's not sexist. And so the these movements that were more covert or kind of secret done in the shadows before a lot of the stuff in this last year has taken place have now become more overt because the culture is just beating us. It's beating us under the weight of our own guilt of some of these things. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, Jared, this is coming and it's here right now. And I'm just curious for you, is this the battle? It's, it's within the churches, if, forget denominationalism. Forget all the other stuff that's going on in our culture. This stuff is here and now. What are we going to do about this as future leaders and current leaders in the church? I expect a 30-second rebuttal file, but no, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. So I think this is just where we need to be faithful. Um, we need to keep speaking truth. We need to keep 
proclaiming the good news. And um, I think the Lord is the vindication of himself. Um, the Lord rarely needs to be defended. Um, but when it comes to, when it comes to things like this, I think this is where we cannot, we cannot react to culture. Right. Um, we, we cannot say, we, we can't be called out and say, well, you're not loving because you're God and you're in, in his book says this. Be like, well, it's not really his book. Men wrote it. And so like we start to like, we start to weasel our way out of, out of yeah. difficult situations. And this is where I think that we do need to know how to, you know, what Peter says of we need to always have a defense or a response to the hope that you have, right? So we need to know, right? We need to know how to respond, but it's never at a, we should never like one, we could throw God under the bus and God can handle it. I mean, that's, that's the first thing, right? Like, (laughs) like we could throw God under the bus and, and he can handle it, but not at the expense of throwing our faith under the bus, right? If we're constantly trying to recreate ourselves, to fit a definition of love or acceptance or t- tolerance or whatever, right. That the, the world is saying that the world is going, it's going to be ever changing in culture. Oh, right. Of course. Um, a good example, a kind of a good example of this. And I'll try to make this quick. Um, I haven't read the book, so I don't know if I can endorse it. Although I've, I've, he just actually recently spoke at a thing for all of that. Let's just listen to him on a podcast. Uh, there's a guy named Esau McCauley. I think that's his name. It's really, this is really off the top of my head. Esau McCauley. He wrote a book called Reading While Black, right? And um, it's about it's about how historically and even currently um, the black church and black theologians have approached scripture, right? Um, so it's very interesting when he's talking about it. And he said, he was like, what's so... And, you know, this is in the context of, of, of race and, you know, how do we, you know, how do we continue to have these conversations about, you know, racism and race in, in the church. And, but this is what he said. This is what was really interesting is that the fun, the fundamentalist movement historically even used the Bible to um, support slavery. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, and he was like, so we really, he was like, so the black church obviously wasn't going to, and like black Christian, like black Christians were not going to get on board with a tradition that used scripture to enslave them. Right. Yeah. He was like, so that's going to be really hard for us to get on board with. He was like, on the other side though, you have, and he was like, because when we read scripture, we read it as a text of freedom and equality that. There was no male nor female. There was no Jew or Greek, right? Um, you could throw in there, there's like no black or white. We are all one in Christ. And that Jesus came to free. He came to loose the bonds of injustice and pain um, to a certain extent, right? To, um, it is, a, it is there is this liberation, right? That happens. There's this redemption. Um, and yes, there's difficulty in where Paul was like, 
if you're stuck in slavery, be the best slave that you can be, right? So that's the, that's the hard word there. But they're like, no, we shouldn't be have, have slavery. Like Paul wasn't endorsing slavery there. He was just saying, if this is a situation you find yourself in, it's wrong, but like, then be the best fo- follower of Christ that you can be. So, so really it is this text of freedom. And this is how, like he's saying, this is how like the black church read it. And this, I, I would agree with that interpretation of oh, scripture. Absolutely. Right. So, but he said, then the problem is, is then you have, you have, he said, you tend to have the mainline traditions finding these inconsistencies and incongruencies where like, oh, well, our God caused genocide to happen. And, you know, it seems like he could like, you know, um, hate different sexual orientations or support slavery or racism because, you know, the fundamentalists found a way to, you know, um, well, a, f- a fundamentalist sect, I would say, a, a, a portion of fundamentalism yes. found a way to support their like racist and um, slavery minded views with scripture. So we're going to go the counter and we're just going to say, you know, scripture is more up to interpretation. Our God isn't like that. So it kind of threw out, it kind of threw out the Bible. And he's actually saying, whoa, 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 that's the text in the Bible that we need to support our freedom. Like, so the whole like progressive movement that started to push in that direction of, well, the Bible's no longer fully applicable for our culture. He's like, but the Bible is what we have to say that we can hold on to that says we deserve like, like as humans, we are equal. Forget about civil rights just as humans. Right. And um, I mean, civil rights are important, but I mean, if we're getting down to the nitty gritty of it, we're just talking about like equal as humans. And we're talking about freedom and we're talking about men, except for to Christ, men and women should not be enslaved to one another. Like, so, so that, that's, that's what, like, we just need to be able to work with the text. Yeah. Instead of run from it. Instead of either run from it or use it for our own will, right? So whenever the whenever scripture is starting to really fall in line with exactly how you think, you that should be a red flag, <laughs> um, you know. And if if scripture is completely opposite of what you think, and you call yourself a and 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 if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, that should also be a red flag. You, like you should resonate yeah. with the. Because of the Holy Spirit living inside of you, now think of that. There's the pendulum. Yeah, yeah. So, so like, let's just let's find the powerful middle ground. Let let let's find the the powerful center of being faithful and true, and dealing with the tension, right? Because also, when you're in the center, you know, it's either pulling one way or pulling the other, yeah. right? So it does take some. It, it does take energy to maintain the center. But if we were just to maintain the center, then we would much, we would, we'd have, I think, a much better chance of properly being countercultural, responding to culture, uh, rather than going um, uh, with the tides and the waves of it. Now, we, we talk a lot about human rights, but we seldom talk about the right to be human and what the Bible has to say about that very thing. Jared, I seriously, thank you so much for just the linchpin on this entire thing, brother. I 
you're going to have to come back on this podcast. I'm going to have to rescue you away from your family. Uh, God bless you and your ministry. Uh, please, just one more time, for those interested in your passion project, where can they go to find out more about followership and discipleship of Jesus? Um, you can go to onthetrack.org. Uh, there's not a ton there, but if you follow it or watch it, uh, there's going to be more coming out on it soon. You can also, um, on Instagram at on the Trek discipleship or on Facebook, um, there's a page on the Trek discipleship. Uh, you can follow that and give it a like, and, uh, we'll have more things coming out, um, on it in the next few months. Excellent. Hey, well, thank you, brother. Appreciate your time. I hope you have a good one, sir. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jared. Appreciate you, brother. Your insight, your passion is so inspiring. And I hope everyone will go away better now that we've had a discussion about the center, about holding to what was true in the past, but not forgetting where God has brought us now in the future. Are we thinking about followership and discipleship? Are we having these tough conversations? And I think it starts with things like this. So thank you so much for leading by example, pal, I love you, man. And I hope you, the listener, will take hold and take root and pray about these discussions, maybe in your own families or at churches if you are in ministry, that we can have these safely and look at some of these difficult things and, and do so with a fearless attitude instead of living out of fear. But if you have any feedback on this podcast or any others going forward, please let us know again on every platform you find a podcast and connecting with us through email at wsnspodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, everyone, God bless you and may God keep you.